Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. Just wanted to let you know, I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. Name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to God's Torah as wise instructions for our lives today. Well, here we are, Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. This chapter is not only one of the most iconic portions of Scripture in that it is displayed in more places in our country than perhaps any other writings in all of history, but this chapter contains several distinctions that make it unique. First off, let's look at this chapter in relationship to the rest of the book of Exodus. Exodus 20. If you're counting chapters, it is the center chapter of the book. Now, this applies in many ways that the chapter numbering simply brings to the front. For example, this chapter is the place in the Torah where we experience a shift that I've been talking about for two weeks now. This chapter is where the structure of the Torah shifts from primarily narrative to primarily divine instruction that's steeped in ancient Near East legal code. Due to this, we'll be shifting our own focus as well as we take our cues from Scripture. We will no longer be talking primarily about people and events, but rather ideas and wisdom ideals. And this chapter in itself is a combination of both narrative and instruction. The two genres are mashed together and the instruction is given in the course of the narrative. Second of all, this chapter above all others is the word of God in a way that is more real than any other place in scripture. In a very real way, this chapter supersedes all other chapters. Now, why do I say this? Well, throughout Scripture, we read of God speaking to men and making His will known. He speaks to Moses a lot through the remainder of the Torah. He speaks to the prophets. He speaks to priests and individuals. But here in Exodus 20 is the one place we read of Hashem speaking to an entire nation all at once. This is an event that is unique in the course of human history. No other religion makes this claim. No other God has appeared to so many all at once. Every other religious practice is based on philosophy, knowledge, or hidden wisdom. They were founded by individuals who claim to have had an experience that the individual then tells us about. 
Not a single other religion speaks of an event such as this and maintains a single continuous memory of this event. There is, in fact, a branch of Hinduism that records a story such as this in which one of the gods appeared to a large group of people all at once. The problem with this Hindu story is that there's no record of this event ever occurring. The only record that we have, or that there ever was, is contained in the writings of one man who related this story to the people centuries after it was said to have occurred. The people had no memory of that event. No record was ever made of this event, and the prophet had to remind the people that this event had even occurred in the first place. This demonstrates clearly to us that this so-called appearing is something that was made up by the one prophet in order to establish a new religion or worship practice, and that's a best-case scenario. Worst case being that this prophet was approached by a demon or a familiar spirit and was told a story that was then believed and disseminated to others as truth. Now to be clear, there are some who make the same claim about Christianity, that it was started by a single man who had a vision of God and they point to Paul as that man. Unfortunately for them, they forget Yeshua was seen alive after his death by thousands of individuals. They forget that Christianity was an established religion before Paul ever came on the scene. Regardless of that, this event at Mount Sinai is not an event that's only brought up later. There is no record of there being a gap in the memory of the people of these events, only of there being a gap in the obedience of the people to the words that were spoken here. And that's a huge difference. This record of this event is perhaps one of the best proofs of the reality of Hashem. And so with all of this, we have a lot to talk about today. So let's get to it. Exodus 20 And Elohim spoke all these words, saying, I am Hashem, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, out of the house of slavery. You have no other mighty ones against my face. You do not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of that which is in the heaven above, or which is in the earth beneath, or which is in the waters under the earth. You do not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, Hashem, your Elohim, am a jealous God, visiting the crookedness of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing covenant loyalty to the thousands, to those who love me and guard my commands. You do not bring the name of Hashem your Elohim to naught, for Hashem does not leave the one unpunished who brings his name to naught. Remember the Sabbath day to set it apart. Six days you labor and shall do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Hashem your Elohim. You do not do any work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days Hashem made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore Hashem blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart. Remember your father and your mother, so that your days are prolonged upon the soil which Hashem your Elohim is giving you. You do not murder. You do not commit adultery. You do not steal. You do not bear false witness against your neighbor. You do not covet your neighbor's house. You do not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, or whatever belongs to your neighbor. And all the people saw the thunders and lightning flashes, the voice of the shofar and the mountain smoking, and the people saw it, and they trembled and stood at a distance, and said to Moshe, You speak with us, and we hear, 
but let not Elohim speak with us lest we die. And Moshe said to the people, Do not fear, for Elohim has come to prove you, in order that his fear be before you, so that you do not sin. So the people stood at a distance, but Moshe drew near to the thick darkness where Elohim was. And Hashem said to Moshe, Say this to the children of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from the heavens. You do not make beside me any mighty ones of silver, and you do not make mighty ones of gold for yourself. Make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your ascending offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your cattle. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I shall come to you and bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, do not build it out of cut stone, for if you use a chisel on it, you have profaned it. Nor do you go up by steps to my altar, lest your nakedness be exposed upon it. Last week we spoke about how the events that we're reading right now are steeped in the language of a marriage covenant. And so this week I want to take a few moments, first of all, to point out how this chapter continues the wedding theme as it exists between God and man. Now we touched on the ancient idea of legal contract for wedding, which in modern Judaism has taken on the name of ketuva. And last week I mentioned how a ketuva contained three stipulations for the relationship that are the rights of a wife from a husband, which is food, clothing, and conjugal rights. This chapter at the very end contains these three ideals in our relationship with God, but they're steeped in language that we don't grasp as such, because they're used in connection to a relationship between God and human, and not between man and woman. In verses 24 through 26 of this chapter, we see these concepts revealed in the relationship that Hashem had with Israel. For what is sacrifice and worship but an intimate time between a human and a God? It's the sharing of company and meal and special time. In the ancient Near East, a sacrifice was seen as giving food to a God, but the God of Israel, as we'll read in Leviticus, makes provision for the worshiper who is seeking to simply be in an intimate relationship to receive food from the table of Hashem. If we pay close attention to Leviticus 7-8, we discover that in the Ola offering mentioned here, the priest receives the skin of the sacrificed animal, clothing. In verse 26, clothing is an integral part of their worship. Unlike any human relationship when clothing is discarded in order to achieve intimacy, in a relationship with God, clothing is a mandatory part of worship. All three topics of intimacy, clothing, and food are touched on here at the end of the chapter, and all three were written into every marriage contract in Israel. The rest of the chapter is the beginning of the Torah of instruction that will be the majority of what we'll read throughout the rest of the Torah. Now, in the ancient Near East, there was an expectation of legal code, of what it should contain and how it should be used. In fact, this is a relatively new area of scholarship that has shifted how many view ancient laws and how they understood the Torah as recorded in the Book of Moses. Now, it's no secret that there was a legal code that existed prior to the Torah. Now, the Code of Hammurabi predates the Torah by several centuries. Now, this label that's been applied to this text and others is in fact a misnomer. The use of the word code implies that what's contained is codified legislation as understood by modern people. But that's not an accurate understanding of what the Code of Hammurabi is, and it's not an accurate understanding of what the Torah is either. The Torah is not a statutory legal code in the same way that an American Code of Laws is. The two things, they are not the same. Kings 
Kings did not make laws, they made decrees. One of the features of statutory law is that it is comprehensive, and the legal code as laid out in ancient sources, including the Torah, is not that comprehensive. Legislation as we think of it is comprehensive in that it covers every possible aspect of life. The Torah and all other ancient Near East legal codes do not do this. This is the reason that the Jews created the Talmud in the first place. The Torah was not specific enough for them, and so they felt the need to create legislation to fill in the gaps that were not specifically addressed. Judaism approaches the Torah as legal code, and as we'll see shortly in doing so, they completely miss the point of the Torah, as we'll soon see. The fact is that we read nowhere in ancient sources of the legal code of Hammurabi being referred to as the reason for why any decision was made in a legal case. Even among the dozen or so cultures that adopted the code of Hammurabi as the ideals to run their society. In the same way, we read nowhere in scripture of the Torah being used as the basis for a legal decision until the book of Ezra. And even then, it's not a legal decision so much as the basis for a communal repentance. It was used by the priests in this case to overcome sin, rather than being used by the government, as it is exemplified in Nehemiah. The simple fact is that ancient peoples simply did not have this understanding of law that we do. And so what is it? What is the Torah and how should we understand it? Well, to discover this, we should understand the people that it was given to and how they understood legal code. What is the purpose of these instructions that were given to Israel if it's not legal code as we understand it? Now, if we look to other ancient cultures, we discover that ancient peoples loved lists. They would make lists out of everything they could think of on a topic. Lists of ancestors, as we see in Chronicles. Lists of populations, as we see in Numbers. Lists of gifts or actions, as in Numbers chapter 7. The book of Proverbs is a list of wisdom sayings. In fact, it is several lists of wisdom sayings, all compiled together into a single work. In other ancient cultures, we find lists of omens, lists of medical diagnosis, lists of symptoms and cures, lists of gods, and so forth. And ancient cultures sought to discover wisdom above all else, because wisdom brought order. And wisdom was thought to be discovered by creating and understanding lists. And so when we approach the Torah as statutory law, we're missing the point. Many of us have recognized this to a limited degree when we point out that the word Torah does not mean law, but rather it means instruction. But then we turn to the Torah and we speak of the 613 laws of the Torah and we speak of nuances and interpretation and many times we then turn to others and attempt to convince at best or force at worst others to align with our own implementation of these instructions as if they were in fact law. And we are the ones who have the only proper understanding. Now, this is something that I've made an attempt to avoid and that I will fight to make sure that the Torah is not used this way in my presence. I don't want to create a tyranny of interpretation and enforce others to live by it because the Torah is not law. That's a relatively modern idea that's been imposed back upon the text. These are modern expectations and more peoples and communities have been ruined because of this outlook than have ever been saved. 
In fact, we find in the book of Isaiah a warning against implementing the Torah in this way. Isaiah 28, 5-13 says, In that day Hashem of hosts is for a crown of splendor and a headdress of comeliness to the remnant of his people, and spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So it begins by saying Hashem is greatly revered among the people of this people who revere justice and who act in courage and strength. Then in verse 7, And these two, the people who love Hashem, justice, and work in strength, have gone astray through wine and through strong drink, wandered about. Priest and prophet have gone astray through strong drink, and they're swallowed up by wine. They wander about through strong drink, and they go astray in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables shall be covered with vomit, and no place without filth. Now, this particular passage is speaking to the people of Ephraim, and it's talking about how they have gone astray in their application of justice. Now, they use Hashem as a crown to beautify themselves, but then they go astray and drink to the point of vomiting and stumble in their interpretation of justice. Then in verse 9, Whom would he teach knowledge, and whom would he make to understand the message? Those weaned from milk, and those taken from the breast, for it is command upon command, command upon command, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. So who is it that can learn to be just and righteous? It's only those who are no longer babes, only those who are mature in faith and understanding. And then in verse 11, For with a jabbering lip and a foreign tongue he speaks to this people to whom he said, This is the rest, give rest to the weary, and this is the refreshing, but they would not hear. This is saying that the word of God is to these people as if God were speaking in a foreign tongue. To them it's as if it's a jabbering lip. They don't hear the clear and plain message of give rest to the weary, and this is the refreshing. God is very clear in his speech, but they've turned it into something else. But what did they turn it into? And we find that in verse 13. But the word of Hashem was to them, command upon command, command upon command, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, so that they go and shall stumble backward and be broken and snared and taken captive. They took the word and the instruction of God and they made it into command upon command and line upon line. And the result is that they stumbled and were led, they were stumbled and they were snared and they were taken captive. In their zeal to do exactly what the Torah says, they turned it into a statutory legal code which does nothing to heal the sick, which gives no rest to the weary. Making the Torah into legal code is dangerous, and this is the result. It's captivity. It's being snared by the unscrupulous and stumbling over the block of stumbling. But the Torah is not legal code, and to reduce it to such is to treat it as if we are children with no understanding, and is to completely disregard the spirit of the Torah in giving rest and refreshing to all. But on the flip side, the Torah is not simply wisdom literature either. Now, many who have come to the understanding of the Torah not being legal code as we understand it land on the thought that the Torah is simply wisdom literature and it's non-binding. But this can't be the case either, or the man picking up sticks on the Sabbath in Numbers 15 would never have faced the death penalty 
if this is just simply wisdom literature. There must be some middle ground here between the two, and it's this that I would like to take the remainder of our time to explore, using the Ten Commandments as the basis for our discussion that can be the foundation that we use to proceed into these future densely packed instructions. Now, where we land on this issue, it will inform where we go as we explore the rest of the Torah, as well as our implementation of the Torah in our own lives and in the expectations that we then place on others. Now, there are these two extremes when it comes to the Torah. On the one side, there is the expectation that everything that we need to know is found in the Torah. This is the legal side, the one that I've already addressed to some degree. This is the side that takes verses such as Deuteronomy 4.2 as the foundation for their view. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.1-2 And now, O Israel, listen to the laws and the judgments which I am teaching you to do, so that you live and shall go in and possess the land which Hashem, your Elohim of your fathers, is giving to you. Do not add to the word which I command you, and do not take away from it, so as to guard the commands of Hashem, your Elohim, which I am commanding you. If we understand the Torah as legal code and all-inclusive, then when we celebrate holidays such as Hanukkah and Purim, it's easily seen as adding to the Torah. But if the Torah is code of laws in this way, then Yeshua too was adding to the Torah in Matthew 5, when he states that if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery, and that if you have hate in your heart, that you've committed murder. These two commands are seen here in the ten that were spoken from the mouth of God in the hearing of all the people, murder and adultery. And yet Yeshua tells us that these commands did not go far enough. They only addressed actions. They did not address the heart. He makes these instructions from the ten words into merely a foundation of living. In Yeshua's view, Breaking these laws in the physical is an overflowing of an internal breaking of the Torah that cannot be seen. So on the other side of this equation is the thought that the law is pure wisdom literature. And this outlook takes verses such as Romans 13.10 as their foundation, which says, Love does no evil to a neighbor, therefore love is completion of the Torah. It's all about love. That's the wisdom principle that's in play. And as long as we can justify whatever we do through a lens of love, then all things are permissible. This is the view that Christian apologists for things like homosexuality take. They are in love, after all. And so, who are we to condemn? Love is the completion of the law, after all. This side is a Wild West chaotic mess of acting out the love of God into the world. Because when anything goes... Anything can be justified as long as a patina of love can be slapped on top of it. Both of these views should fall short. If it's statutory legal code that cannot be added to, then Yeshua is a false prophet because he makes the law more restrictive by adding layers of implementation that are not clearly stated. Judaism takes this stance, and many who rely on this verse to condemn others for taking action that is not specifically spoken of in Scripture take this stance too without realizing it. Now, if it's simply wisdom literature, then everyone who faced capital punishment under the Torah was unjustly punished. The majority of modern Christianity takes this view. The Torah kills after all, right? But there is a third way, as there usually tends to be, a way down the middle that I believe can reveal to us a truth of the matter. 
You see, the Ten Commandments, they act as a framework for all else that we read in the rest of the Torah. These commands can be reduced and summarized by simply stating that it's all about love. You see, love is, in fact, the underlying wisdom principle of the Torah. Yeshua points this out clearly. Mark 12, 28-31 And one of the scribes coming near, hearing them reasoning together, knowing that he had answered them well, asked, Which is the first command of all? And Yeshua answered him, The first of all the commands is, Hear, O Israel, Hashem your Elohim, Hashem is one. And you shall love Hashem your Elohim with all your heart, and with all your being, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first command, and the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And these commands sum up the Ten Commandments. Now for most, if we break up the commandments into two parts, we can discover that Yeshua's interpretation is in fact a summation of these ten words. Now, when this usually occurs, the split occurs with the first four commands being about loving God and the final six commands being about loving men. I don't agree. I think that the split is five and five. Now this brings up the question, how is the fifth command of honor your father and mother part of loving God? Well, simple. Who gave you the parents that you have? It was God. Honoring your father and mother, it's recognizing this and living in full acceptance of this truth, that without your parents, you would not have life. Now, this makes only the final five about loving your fellow men. And so Yeshua's summation is just that. It's not the end of the matter, but a summation of the matter. We can't just stop here and be done with it and define these ideals however we like. And if we consider this framework of five and five with God represented in the first five and man represented in the second, we discover that these commands are given in parallel. Each command as given towards God is repeated when the list gets to the human realm. So, for example, the first command is, I am Hashem your God. That's it. How is that a command? It's not really. And it, all throughout the book of Exodus, these are referred to as the Ten Words. In fact, throughout most of the Bible, these are referred to as the Ten Words, not the Ten Commandments. So, for example, the first command is, I am Hashem your God. This is a recognition of the existence of Hashem. And the corollary command in the human realm is, do not murder. If we compare these two together, we can see a deeper principle at play here. Do not deny the existence of either God or other men. The second command of do not make graven images is connected to adultery, and this is something that's reflected all throughout Scripture. The third command is do not take the name of Hashem in vain, and it's connected to stealing in the human realm. After all, uh, Hashem owns everything in the earth. What's the one thing that can be taken from him? His name, his reputation his place as the preeminent source of all. And when we take his name in the same way that a wife takes the name of her husband, we're expected to accurately represent his name to the world at large. Not accurately living out his image while claiming to be in his image and protection is something that will not go unpunished. Why? Why is this the one that will not go unpunished? because you have stolen something that was precious from a king. The fourth command, keep the Sabbath, 
and the parallel? Don't bear false witness. The keeping of the Sabbath is a witness to all about who you worship. We worship the God of creation. He kept the Sabbath at creation, and so our own keeping of the Sabbath is our witness of who we serve. And the fifth command, honor your father and mother. And the tenth command, do not covet. Now, this one can be a little bit more difficult to pierce the connection between, but when we understand that both commands are speaking of not seeking to overturn your life circumstances simply because you believe the grass to be greener elsewhere, we see that this command is about finding joy in the place where God has you now, regardless of what circumstances surround you. Even if your neighbor has a better donkey or a better house or even a better wife, even if your friends have better parents or your parents are awful. This command says, do not seek to have the life of another. You have your life. You're where you're at. Accept it and love God. He's the one who controls your circumstances after all, and he's the only one who can change those circumstances into something worthwhile. And he's asked you to partner with him to do that. Now, this little aside is something that I've taught on this Parsha in my own local community at least three times through. I didn't get this from my own study. This is something that I got from Rabbi David Foreman of Aleph Beta. He does a wonderful teaching on this. It's so profound, though, and as I reflected on it, that I just, I continually have to share this. Looking at the Ten Commandments in this way, it truly helps us to understand the underlying ideals of the Ten Commandments. And you can see the Ten Commandments, they're a framework within which we can understand the ways of life. And so just as it can be summed up as love God and love men, so too can it be extrapolated into a larger picture way of life. And it is the Torah that gives us the guidelines for this outlook that Yeshua demonstrates in his statements of Matthew 5 and other places. In fact, when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to speak very clearly on this once again, because the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy they act as a table of contents or an index for the remainder of the commands that are given in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's this extrapolation that allows us to understand and to identify the decrees of the Torah and connect them to the ten that we read here. And it's this extrapolation that allows us to identify the following commands and place them under the ten that are declared here. For example, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, Hear, O Israel, Hashem our God, Hashem is one, and you shall love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is an instruction that is repeated daily in Jewish communities and in many Christian communities. It's called the Shema. This is an outpouring of the very first command. Or how about Deuteronomy 12, 5 through 6 says, But seek the place which Hashem your God chooses out of all of the tribes to put his name there for his dwelling place. And there you shall enter, and there you shall take your sending offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contributions of your hands and your vowed offerings and your voluntary offerings and the first things of your herd and your flock. This command falls under the principle of make no graven images. The second command, bring them to God, have no other gods before me. Leviticus 19, 26-29 says, Do not eat meat with the blood. Do not practice divination or magic. Do not round the corner of your head, nor destroy the corner of your beard. And do not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor put tattoo marks on you. I am Hashem. These commands fall under taking Hashem's name in vain, because they're all speaking of doing things that are not of Him. 
It's the third command. Or Exodus 34, 21 through 23, six days you work, but on the seventh day you rest. In plowing time and in harvest you rest. And perform the festival of Shavuot for yourself and the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times in the year, all your men are to appear before the Master Hashem, the God of Israel. All of the feast days and several other commands, which we're going to look at much closer when we get to Leviticus 23, they fall under the Sabbath command, the fourth command. Deuteronomy 18, 1-2 The priests and the Levites and all the tribes of Levi who have no part or inheritance with Israel, they are to eat the offerings of Hashem made by fire as his inheritance. But among his brothers, Levi has no inheritance. Hashem is his inheritance, as he has spoken to him. Those who are descendants of Levi are to honor their parentage by not taking land as an inheritance. Fifth command. Deuteronomy 20, 10-11 When you draw near to a city to fight against it, then you shall make a call for peace to it. And it shall be that if it accepts your call for peace and shall open to you, then all the people found in it are to be your compulsory labor and to serve you. This falls under the sixth command. Do not murder. An escape is to be allowed for anyone who does not wish to fight. Exodus 30, 37-38 And the incense which you make, do not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It is sanctified to you for Hashem. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. The creation of this type of incense for any purpose other than the worship of Hashem is adultery. You're adulterating his instructions on the recipe of the incense. The seventh command. Exodus 23, 4-5 When you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, and you shall certainly return it to him. When you see the donkey of him who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it to him, for you shall certainly help him. Falls under the heading of theft. The eighth command. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 when a man takes a wife and shall marry her, then it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found a matter of uncoveredness in her, and he shall write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her out of his house. And if she left his house and went and became another man's wife, and the latter husband shall hate her, and write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that would be an abomination before Hashem. And do not bring sin on the land which Hashem, your, your Elohim, is giving you as an inheritance. Doing this is a false witness in the man that is not true, not only to his covenant that he made in the first place, but then he's not true to the breaking of the covenant that was signified in the divorce. This is a repeated false witness, which falls under the ninth command. And finally, Deuteronomy 24, 5, When a man has taken a new wife, let him not go out into the army, nor let any matter be imposed upon him. He shall be exempt one year for the sake of his home, to rejoice with his wife whom he has taken. Taking a man away from the things that give his life meaning is covetousness, especially when the thing that you want him to give you is his life for your cause, whatever that cause is, even if it's a holy Cause, do not covet his life for your purposes. The tenth command. And this, this little exercise that we just went through can be done with every instruction of the Torah. Each and every one, including the instructions for the tabernacle and the priestly garments, they can all be traced back to one of the ten. 
which can then be traced back to one of the two, love God and love others, which can then be traced back to the one, love. And this sums up and fulfills the Torah. Love. So when we read that the law is fulfilled in love, that does not mean that the rest of the commandments can be discarded and seen only as wisdom principles, as long as we can attach an emotion of love to it. But in the same way, when it says that the Torah should not be added to or taken away from, that does not mean that extrapolation cannot or should not occur. Extrapolation is necessary for full understanding and implementation of the biblical text as Yeshua and Paul and others demonstrate over and over and over again throughout their ministries. If we limit it to just the words on the page, we run the risk of stumbling over the stone of stumbling that Isaiah 28 spoke of when describing those who turned God's instruction into command upon command, the stone that was described earlier in Isaiah in chapter 8. Isaiah 8, 11-17 For Hashem spoke thus to me, with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Hashem of hosts, him you shall set apart. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a holy place. But a stone of stumbling and a rock that makes for falling to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and snared and taken. Bind up the witness, seal the Torah among my disciples, and I shall wait on Hashem who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I shall look for him. It is this stone of stumbling that Israel falls over here in this chapter. When they hear the voice of God, they react in dread of one thing. We cannot hear the words of God without dying, they declare. There will be nothing left of me if I do what he has said to the degree that he intends for me to take it. I'll be dead if he continues to speak. I'll have nowhere left for me to hide. And they stumbled. They were not able to take what Hashem had said to heart. They recognized that doing so would slay them, and they were too wrapped up in themselves. They saw God, they heard His words, and they were unable to understand. And they turned the Torah into something that it was never meant to be. They made it the way to achieve salvation, rather than the way of the saved. This is the stone of stumbling that Isaiah spoke of. This is the same stone that Paul speaks of in Romans in chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. What then shall we say, that the nations not following after righteousness have obtained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, following after the Torah of righteousness, has not arrived at the Torah of righteousness. Why? Because it was not of faith, but as by works of the Torah. For they stumbled at the stone of stumbling. As it has been written, See, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock that makes for falling, and everyone who is a believing on him shall not be put to shame. The Torah was never intended to be the end game. It was never intended to be all that is expected of the people of God. It was always to be what Paul describes in Galatians, in Galatians 3, 24 through 25. 
But before faith came, we were being guarded under Torah, having been shut up for the faith being about to be revealed. Therefore the Torah became our trainer unto Messiah in order to be declared right by faith. The Torah was always only ever a baseline. It's a starting point. It's a foundation on which faith is built. It's the tutor, the instructor, the guidelines for children that builds us up into what we were always intended to be. The image of Messiah who is the image of God. And now that we're in Messiah, we don't simply get to discard the instruction of the tutor, but rather we get to apply it to our lives and live within and grow the message that we were entrusted with. For Yeshua, he embodied not the letter of the Torah. The letter of the Torah kills if it only ever stays a letter and a law. But Messiah lived in the spirit of the Torah, and this, the spirit of the Torah, is life to all who believe, to all who have faith. The Torah cannot save you. The Torah cannot redeem you. Obedience to the Torah cannot purify you. To make these claims is to get everything out of order. It's to put the cart before the horse. Only faith can save you. Only Yeshua can redeem you. And only the Holy Spirit can purify you. Nothing else has this power. Nothing. Not even the Torah has the power to do these things. It can only ever give guidelines to live by. But it will never be law and it should never be law. That way lies the path of death and not life. So let us continue to Deresh Chai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.